That's classified. It's what? It's classified. It had been deemed classified. And B, that footage is highly classified. Classified. It's classified. You can't tell anybody, but people need to know. Welcome to CIO Classified, where you'll find candid conversations with the world's leading CIOs. In each episode, we have two different CIOs discuss a single topic. This week, we were joined by Fleming Shi and Raphael Marty. Fleming is the CTO of Barracuda. He has spent the last 16 years building their engineering and technology teams to be the industry standard of cybersecurity. Rafi is the previous Chief Research and Information Officer at Forcepoint. He is a technology leader that has done it all. Engineer, consultant, founder, and CIO. He knows what it takes to make your IT revolutionary. Fleming and Rafi share how you can work against hackers, the nuances of cybersecurity, how to empower your employees against cyber threats, and much more. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from today's sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Box, Okta, Slack, and Zoom. Modern employees demand the best tools at work. If your company wants to embrace the modern work environment, you need best-of-breed tools like Box, Okta, Slack, and Zoom. This episode of CIO Classified is brought to you by Box. With collaborations so widespread, securing your critical files and managing risk across your people, devices, and apps is now an urgent issue. That's where we come in. Box. Simplify how you work. Secure collaboration with anyone, anywhere, on any device. Learn more at box.com slash work unleashed. And now here's your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to CIO Classified. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios, and today I'm joined with my amazing co-host, Cassidy. How are you? I'm great. How are you today? Great to have you back in the fold after one episode hiatus. Actually, I almost said one episode suspension, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I got in trouble. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> yeah, and two awesome guests. Super excited for these. First, Rafi, how are you? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you on the show. And Fleming, how are you? Been great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, excited to chat cybersecurity. It's not something we've dived super deep into on CIO Classified yet. And and today we're going to dive very deep into that. So let's start off, Fleming, with you. Can you tell us a little bit about your role as CTO at Barracuda? Absolutely. So being CTO at Barracuda, it wasn't the first role. I have been here for over 16 years and uh, really developed a lot of the products and services. But being CTO right now, it's really about looking after the future innovate and embrace a lot of the innovation coming from the engineers, scientists, and researchers to make sure we're staying on the journey with our customers. Because the customers are moving, they do things differently. As the world is changing, we're always looking for ways to support them with the right technology, right product at the right price, as well as making sure the company has our services deployed in all kinds of different form factors. So it's pretty exciting work. And yeah, looking forward to uh, doing more of it and continue the journey ourselves. Awesome. And so, you know, a lot of times we have CIOs on the show that manage both internal, sometimes product, sometimes customer facing. Do you have sort of a similar mandate or are you more product focused and customer focused? I'm more focused on the technology and products, obviously making sure our microservices is running everywhere in the world, being able to provide those security features to all the different products that's integrating these microservices because microservices on their own is not really able to do everything. So it's really the products that integrating 
with these microservices can then provide uh, protection for the customers in different aspects and different attack surfaces. So that's kind of what I do. I'm not the CIO of Barracuda. We do have a CIO, which is obviously handling more of the operational aspects of making sure the service is always up and running efficiently, that type of role. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Part of the reason we were so excited to do the episode today with both of you is so many CIOs either have a mandate for security. Obviously, they need to be fluent in security. Sometimes they have a CISO, sometimes not. And so we wanted to be able to paint a pretty good description of the security industry today. And and who better than what's knowing on out there in the world than, than Rafi? Can you tell us about your role, Rafi? Sure, yeah. So I actually just left my previous post last week. I'm enjoying the beautiful time in between jobs of spending a lot of time in the yard and things like that. But um, most recently, I ran research and intelligence for Forcepoint. And that was basically, we, my group, looked after what are the emerging threats out there? What are the latest vulnerabilities in the products that we need to protect our customers from? And then bring that both together and sort of define and, and build signatures and and detection methods to prevent these kinds of attacks. And then I had a, a really cool group with researchers and actually there was a, a psychologist on the team also and counterintelligence people where we worked on figuring out how can we characterize human behavior and then figure out when that behavior changes and starts turning bad, right? So we're, we were trying to do things in the realm of, we call this moving left of breach, so you want to, before the breach happens, you already want to detect signs of things going haywire or some, maybe someone is veering off a little bit and, and you see signs of either a person was attacked and their, their accounts are being abused or they like themselves turn against the company. So that's super interesting work we've been doing there on, on the research side uh, with, with that group. Awesome. I'm excited to have you right after the change. So uh, you're in reflection mode, which is always good podcast content. Yeah, it's been actually really fun just reaching out to my network and just figuring out like you're putting blinders on wherever you are, right? Like any company and you sort of focusing on that viewpoint and being able to go out again and just completely open, looking at different market segments again, different technology solutions, the investor side, the consumer side. It's been really, really fun. That's so neat. And so with this whole security side of everything, it, it feels like it's kind of a constant game of trying to stay ahead of hackers. So is there a way to escape this cat and mouse game between hackers and security industry? I think when we look at security and how most of the industry works is we're trying to understand what hackers are doing, right? Like we're, we're trying to collect malware, dissect it, understand how it works, and then we put protection mechanisms in place. At the same time, we're trying to figure out, we're, we're trying to break software proactively, right? We have security researchers that look at the vulnerabilities of these different software components we're using. They find them, they put preventative mechanisms in place and fix these holes and so on. But we're always a step behind the bad guys, right? Because we only know what they have applied already. The stuff we haven't discovered, the things they're starting to do tomorrow, we don't know about yet. And so we have been doing a lot of work where we said, you know, we need to do that, right? There's no way around it. We have to play that game, but it's never ending. There's always another vulnerability. There's always another thing that these bad guys are doing. We can obviously try to get better in the process of building software already, but 
we tried to figure out what are some of the other constants that we can monitor, things that you would see signs of something going bad. And that's what I started talking about with understanding humans and also understanding the data. And if you, if you understand how your data moves around, you might have a chance to figure out when there's something strange happening, right? For example, I might send emails. If, I, if you look at who I send emails to, there's multiple different groups of people, right? I have inside of the company, there's a group that I share PowerPoints and work documents with. There's another group I might share Excel spreadsheets with financial information with. There is externally, I generally don't share PowerPoints and Word documents, but probably PDFs, right? And then there's people that never exchange any attachments. Now, if I can model that in some way and then find deviations where suddenly there's external parties that start sharing Word documents with or something like that, and maybe there's even financial information in there, that can set up a warning sign. So we've been trying to model these kinds of interactions, understand what's normal, and then find the deviations. Incredibly hard, right? We haven't solved it yet. But I think it's the right approach because that's really where you see these things starting to go wrong, right? That's how we looked at it at Force Point. If I can add to that, you know, actually, Rafi just mentioned something that we were also doing. We find that way beyond the new ways of trying to protect people, especially related to spear phishing. So, you know, like you mentioned, are we ever going to win this game between cat and mouse? there's a possibility because Rafi just described some of the logic that we use actually in our uh, product called Sentinel, which is really about learning about the historical email patterns, like the communication patterns. Then from there, we can identify the anomalies that's really kind of happening. You know, why is this person emailing this person asking for certain type of activities or actions, right? So, yeah, so it has gotten to that level where you have to understand the conversation now. It's not just about the domain or sender IP that you can stop. It's about the conversations, about the intent, it's about the sentiment. You know, it's getting smart. So that said, I believe this is going to continue. It's not going to stop because every step of the way, regardless if it's migration to the cloud or adoption of the cloud technologies or working from home, these are all new ways for the attackers to get in and we have to figure out ways to stop them. Yeah. And with all those technology changes, obviously the behavior of the user changes, right? So how do you how do you know when the behavior actually by the user change or the technology had an impact? It's, it's complex, right? And this is a stat I think from Barracuda Fleming that 91% of cyber attacks start with an email. I mean you're talking about especially when you as you move to a remote remote environment or remote work environment, 91%. I mean, that's staggering. It is. Look, the first time I touched the email was using Elm, if you guys remember. it was That's where I learned how to use VI, you know? It was a command line uh, tool. Um, from that time to now, I mean, it was the innocent, it's as cool as Slack. You know, if you're a geek, you love using email back then. Look, I just emailed you. This was like 20 years ago, right? So now it's no longer innocent because it's obviously in a way it opened the door for bad guys because email is where people feel like they have trust. They feel like this account, someone sent an email to me, oh, um, there's a document I must open, a link I must click. But behind the scenes, there's so many metadata, you know, packaging envelopes that a lot of the stuff that we are obviously doing, providing solution to uh, to examine are the key where the bad guys try to get in, right? Spoofing a domain, take over your account, figure out a way to steal your credential or maybe 
getting into a breach, they can kick your credential anyway. Then they get onto your inbox and change the routing rules for email. Things all like that, it makes it much harder. So yes, it's an easy entry because how people communicate today, it's email. And I feel like there, you talked about some of the deep technical challenges, right? Like, because like, as you said, like, like stealing credentials and tricking someone into clicking a URL or you have a, a document, an attachment that's infected with a virus or something like that. But what I find scary is that it's the just, there's just text and someone says, hey, please do this, right? We really need to get this done right now. The typical example of the CEO sending an email to the CFO, right? It's like, hey, we need to make this payment. And that's where you abuse trust, right? And you just, you make an email look like it comes from your CEO and or, or someone in, in a position of authority. And that's the scary piece where it's not just analyzing the URL and technical indicators anymore. Now we have to build systems that understand language and understand intent and understand how do I normally write my emails, right? And like, how does it look? And then, uh, it's, it's, getting, it, it's getting interesting and complex. <laughs> and another piece on that too is when you're catching all the good stuff, this is something that like Gmail, you look at like how much stuff Gmail throws into spam. And I think I've talked about it on the show. I had an inbound lead come to my inbox the other day that was flag spam. And it was like, Hey, Ian, just following up from LinkedIn. We'd love to buy something uh, from Caspian. And I didn't, you know, you never check spam. And I went and checked spam. And it, there's just a, like a regular email in there. And you're like, you're talking about potentially losing companies lots of money if you're shepherding stuff away that should be, that are, that are real business emails. Yeah. In fact, it is really true. The false positives are going to be there. This is why when people look at machine learning, there's two major buckets, right? One is uh, supervised, one's unsupervised. The supervised machine learning gives you the ability to really train your model to get down to all the properties of a piece of information or a set of information. Then eventually they train it to the point where you get really high efficacy. But if, if it's unsupervised, only have a few uh, properties to detect on, you will not be able to get the high efficacy in a sense where you potentially will be subject to a lot of false positives. And like uh, Rafi mentioned, a lot of these trainings, not, not on links, links and documents, those are things we, we have done you know, in the past, but it's still important. But it's about understanding the language and understanding the language different in different languages, different internationalized languages, and eventually build that model to really uh, apply it. There will still be times there you will run into false positives for sure. Yeah. Google is actually really, 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 really good at detecting spam, right? And not having too many false positives. Like, but it, it's a hard problem, right? Because as Swing was explaining in the supervised case, you're basically giving the system examples of good things and bad things, right? And it learns from there how these things look. And you can't get it 100% right because that email probably had some properties in there that looked suspicious and the system started rating it higher. It's just, that is really, really, really hard. But hopefully you're like, these systems are, but interesting because you can give it feedback once if you actually click on that, hey, this is not spam, it will learn from that again. And so hopefully with training, you will not lose any more leads there, Ian. <laughs> I actually watched a lecture somewhat recently where it was talking about how researchers are trying to build models to identify who a coder is, depending on how they write if statements, depending on how they space things. And it was fascinating because it was really, really interesting. I'm a developer myself to see how just adding a space after certain things can 
identify me. And that is such a constrained format when it's writing in JavaScript or writing in Python or something. And so thinking about it on the level of English or if someone is multilingual, I, it, it's a big problem to solve. Also, obfuscation, right? A lot of times you want to obfuscate your code and it makes it much harder to learn. So there are many, many challenges using AI for what we do. It's also challenging for the bad guys too, because sometimes they will mimic your model to figure out how to get past your model. Those are also interesting to make sure uh, we have ways to protect the customer. Yeah. So we touched on this a little bit, and I would love to dive in a bit more. Just in terms of remote work, this past year has been kind of chaotic on that front, and it's changed a lot of things. How has the move to remote work impacted cybersecurity outside of just that email vector and everything? Based on what I have seen so far, I mean, it definitely has a major impact, right? Because we all had to go to remote working literally two weeks, maybe shorter in, for, in some cases for different folks. But based on that, you're going to have some preparation issues, right? So do you have proper networking connectivity? Do you have zero trust in place? Do you have MFA? Because a lot of applications now for not just coders, but also for other functions in the companies are going to require access. You know, SaaS application is the dominant tool for them, right? So providing some level of zero trust-based access to those applications and make sure they're doing their job and stay productive is challenging. Rolling out something like that, it's also probably first time for many companies. So that's one thing. On the side of developers, I think remote work has been kind of cool because people can spend more time working and less time commuting. But also it means cloud environments are going to be super vulnerable. You know, back to earlier discussion with Rafi mentioned about the human behavior. When you're using cloud environments to do your work for software engineers, you may end up opening ports. You may end up opening things that you're not supposed to, to just to get access to, you know, from your IP, from your home, for example, right? You want to SSH into a, a workload to do certain things. Those are what we call cloud security posture problems that we basically have to constantly monitor. So both cloud access makes remote work easier because you can get to AWS, Azure, GCP easily. And also, obviously, having those access is great. But if you are kind of loose on your security policies, you may end up opening a port to uh, potentially letting the bad guys in. Of course, now we bring your own network <laughs> it be beyond just bring your own device, if you think about it, from working from home, your ne home network is probably filled with some type of IoT, smart devices, all those things. It potentially can open the door for the bad guys as well. Um, because when you buy these things off Amazon, they don't have a security rating on there. They don't tell you this device will phone home and may have a back door. <laughs> None of that. Then you put in your home network with the little tiny cable modem, hoping it will work. Yeah, it will work, but you don't know what the security posture is. So zero trust is really important onto the device you're using. But I believe remote work have opened more windows and doors for the bad guys. And they're just having a field day, you know, if we're not careful. Yeah. I mean, have you seen like an increase in incidents? Have there been any trends that you've seen over the past year with these uh, with more open doors and windows? Yeah, yeah. I give you one example. We actually blocked about it. It's called Interplanetary Storm Malware, which is a botnet that infiltrated into the, when it was first appeared, maybe a couple of years ago, with just Windows systems. Now it's into Linux environments. Now it's into Android devices. 
it even utilizes Android's debugging port, like a bridge port that basically to get into the device. So we actually saw these, I wouldn't call it outbreak, but it's infiltrating into many homes, right? And these botnets are ready to do things. All you need is command control, right? They're capable of doing all kinds of things. They can send spear phishing emails coming from a residential IP. I mean, how do you, most of the gateway solutions will fail because you wouldn't have that residential IP on, on a block list, right? For example. So if you think about these spear phishing attacks could be targeted, could be volumetric, could be DDoSing, all sorts. So botnets are basically infiltrating into homes. And of course, lateral movement from there, you know, island hopping into your cloud environment. I just give you one example. It can happen if they are able to get into your system. And I don't know if this happens. I mean, I have multiple systems at home. Sometimes I transfer files through Bluetooth. More easier for me because instead of opening an SSH port between my systems, I wouldn't want to open an SSH port, right? Unless they have physical access to the radio signal, I wouldn't want certain ports open. So point there is, if they're able to hop into a system and identify your keys for IAM access to AWS, to S3 buckets, to all sorts of environment, then boom, that's their way into your much larger corporate infrastructure. So if you think about that, that's happening. I will say remote work is not easy. It's working, but securing it, it's not easy. Yeah. There's a few things, right? Like you have, I have my laptop here at home and I have intellectual property on it because I need to work on it, right? Be that financial documents or source code or something. And then I'm now in my home network, as Fleming was saying, right? Like what other devices are here? How vulnerable is it? I have the neighbor on my network because he came over for a beer and he wanted to connect to the Wi-Fi. Who knows if I can trust him? I hope I can. But then my computer now connects back to the corporation, like with VPN, right? I, I dial in. Now my computer is an extension of the corporate network. Oh my God, right? And then what Fleming said, you have sort of island hopping from there. And there's another interesting example. I heard of companies where developers or employees in general walked out with desktop computers to take them home because that's where this stuff is on that they need. As a security person, like the chief security officer in that company, what are you going to do? Suddenly these machines are walking out, getting plugged into different networks. How secure is that, right? I mean, it's a nightmare. Somebody comes in the house. It's zero trust, Rafi. We know that. <laughs> <laughs> Unless they bring beer and wine, right? Of course. <laughs> you just lose your mind. <laughs> BYOB and BYON. You got to have your own network. You got, you got a hotspot. You don't need me. I would say it definitely impacted the cybersecurity. Yeah. Obviously, you know, we talk to a lot of CIOs on this show. How do you think that security going forward should be in the CIO's priorities? Like how much of this is baked into every single thing that they do? Because like when you talk about remote work, when you talk about work from home, and if you think of the CIO as this person who is optimizing the employee's digital experience, for example... Is there like this push and pull between security and efficiency? There are always two personas fighting each other, right? So the, it, even before remote work was starting, moving to the cloud, for example, in some way you're putting your server remotely on someone else's computer. It was really, really fast because when AWS became much uh, well adopted and you can just see developers are enjoying it, right? So you can see AWS uh, reinvent every year just tens of thousands of developers going in there. So the personas are always going to have clash. So 
like you mentioned, efficiency and productivity always going to end up being having some friction with security and privacy, right? So, and those are things that we see as well. But, you know, usually what happens is the developer will move so fast, let it be remote or in the cloud and end up leaving a security posture completely unchecked and getting to a bad situation. Then the security officers or CISOs will come in and basically take away everything, right? And so it's very disruptive. So one of the things we saw, even Barracuda initially, we were doing a lot of good stuff with email, you know, network and data protection, but we saw this problem. So Barracuda actually developed a product called the Cloud Security Posture, you know, Cloud Security Guardian. It's a CSPM product. We used it ourselves to make sure we don't have any more abuse reports coming from AWS because abuse reports are basically AWS telling Fleming, one of your engineer just left the door open, now it's mining bitcoins or it's doing bad things <laughs> then you, you got to take away that system you have we have to kill it so situation like that got much lower once you have a any type of cloud security posture even native ones it's really good for your developers right to make sure they're staying with the guardrails if they make a mistake the configuration will fail they will be automatically notified so those are the things i think it's important regardless it's remote or cloud these type of security posture, this is why we call it zero trust. Because the security posture while working from home, that particular posture is about your endpoint security settings. Let it be patch levels, let it be which Wi-Fi you're on, are you on a, a you know open Wi-Fi, things like that. So this makes all these things are happening throughout the pandemic. This makes the number one priority for our CIO being security, make sure security is, is the first thing they check off, make sure we have ZTNA, make sure we have MFA before we send ho- people home, <laughs> right? We actually were lucky we didn't have to have people move their computers <laughs> or, or desktops, but but generally some of those high power systems required to do their job or can be in the cloud. So we have cloud security posture, security management, uh, sort of posture management when it's they're just using their system to write the code and you know, not so much GPU requirement. We apply the ZTNA with the endpoint security posture measurement. And uh, yeah, so that's how I see it. It's number one thing for our team. And for sure, this is probably the same for the, for the industry. Yeah. As a CIO, right? It's every single project you have needs to have a security component to it, period, right? You're buying a SaaS service. Well, you probably want to understand how secure it is. You want to understand what kind of data is collected there, and you want to have some assurance that that data is handled correctly with security and privacy mandates and, and standards around that, right? If you're doing internal development, like Fang was saying, you better have an SDLC, a secure development lifecycle, where security is built into your development processes. You cannot get around that anymore. And ideally, I actually say that, generally say that it's an SP DLC. It's a security and privacy development lifecycle. You cannot go without that anymore. Today, privacy is a huge topic. You cannot be caught in the crosshairs or or not paying attention to privacy if you're building new things. So I think it goes everywhere. And then thirdly, you know, your board, your your board of directors, they have responsibility over security at this point, right? There's a lot of board initiatives where the board is starting to look into, okay, how do we deal with security? Because they, in the end, are the ones liable for potential breaches and so on. So they're trying to understand how well are we actually doing in security. And uh, as the CIO, 
you probably want to be able to explain how secure your projects are, right? Working with the CISO on the security side to do that. Yeah, it's a great point. I, I thought at first you were saying you're bored. Like, yeah, you're probably bored. You know, you're just going to cruise around on the internet and click on... <laughs> it's my, it's my <laughs> Swiss accent, you know? <laughs> just going to click on stuff and see what happens. Ruffy's point is very accurate. A lot of times they see CISOs having the same level of responsibility. So you may have more visibility than the CIO because security is such an important thing now. You can't live without so I know I know nobody here has a crystal ball, but we do want to lean forward a little bit and look towards the rest of 2021 and beyond and look at some security predictions. And maybe we start out, Rafi, with let's talk some AI. Is AI dangerous? We talked a little bit about how it might be dangerous earlier, but yeah, is it? It's going to solve all our problems, obviously, right? It's this mythical machine that just finds all the bad guys. Oh, look, I, I've been... For a couple of years, I've been running around cautioning people a little bit from this whole AI thing. At some point, I gave a talk and said AI is actually dangerous. And what I meant by that is that I think on a couple of levels, right? First, I'm joking that AI is going to solve all of our problems. I think at this point, we kind of realize it's not the case, right? AI, in the end, uh, when I started in this whole industry 20 years ago, we had a lot of data and we used statistics. Today, you just you call it big data and you call it AI, but guess what? It's still the same things we're doing. So we're still using stats. We can process more data, right? We have gotten to a place where we can run much larger models. We have a couple better uh, algorithms like deep learning and so on. But fundamentally, these systems haven't, like, there's not a fundamental shift we had. We actually reverted back to some older algorithms like belief networks and things like that to solve some of our problems because they work better than these black boxes that were, than we're, what we were applying. So on the danger side, I think we should make sure we are not relying too much on the machines and especially not with black boxes, right? Like when we're learning these things, like your spam example, right? It's a black box. The system learns based on these examples that you're giving it and it learns something. It will come up with some knowledge about what's good and what's bad, spam works pretty well because we have a lot of data we can feed it and tell it, look, this is good, this is bad. But there's so many problems where this is not the case, right? I don't have a lot of sample data, even just teaching a car how to drive. I can give it a lot of examples, but you want to make sure that the false positives are zero, right? Because otherwise that one false positive is going to kill a person. So what you don't want is these black boxes. You want to have a system where you can look at what did it actually learn and look, oh, okay, if this happens, then it does this, right? And then you can have an expert look at it and correct these things and they get input to it. So we need to build systems that leverage expert input, basically. And that's something I've been sort of running around quite a bit to, to evangelize that people are doing that. And, and that's how I see a little bit of the danger in cybersecurity where you're building black boxes left and right. Nobody understands what they actually do, and we're making critical decisions based on those. So that that's one of the aspects that that I see. And maybe the second one I mentioned quickly is, as a developer today, using AI, I'm using the term very loosely, is actually really simple. You literally download a library, you plug it in, you call a certain function, you give it the parameters, and it spits something out. It gives you some result. As a developer, I do not have to understand what algorithm it just ran. I don't have to know any statistics. I can just run it. But if I give it the wrong input, if I give it the wrong data and use the wrong algorithm, the system still gives me an output, but it doesn't mean that it's actually correct. 
And if you're not a, a statistician or a data scientist to understand how these algorithms work and what the right inputs are, you can actually get completely wrong results. And I, I've, I've given a presentation at Black Hat a couple of years ago where I showed some examples and it's dangerous, right? Modern technology has made it easy for us to do these things, but we have to be really careful on understanding still what they're doing. And we also just need to have diverse teams running this thing, because if you have the exact same kind of people making all of these models, that's when you start to get models that are making very biased predictions and it can get pretty dangerous there. Yeah, definitely. Ethics needs to be checked as well to make sure, you know, what data you put in is really to be trained for is very important. People, you always reference it as, you know, garbage in, garbage out, right? So you want to make sure high quality data, high ethics being applied when, when you're training models. Yeah. And one more thing on that topic, AI can be used against us in a sense, not like a Terminator you know, situation, but more like deep fake. You guys <laughs> probably know. Uh, we actually did a hackathon one time. We were able to reconstruct, you know, just for fun, you know, someone high up executive's voice and made a voicemail delivery. It was perfect. It was like real. And imagine fishing with that, right? could be even more scarier. That's crazy. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought of that. The deep fake voicemail. And if it's coming from, looks like it's coming from your CEO, that's a pretty terrifying sequence. The question is, how do you counteract that, right? How do we, like for us, it's Fleming and I, we're thinking about how do we detect these things, right? And we could come up with really crazy technical solutions for it. But it's actually, the challenge for us is going to be, I think we have to go back to the users and educate them and just because I have a voicemail from someone that says, hey, go do this, I might want to go and verify that, right? Like, we have to get trained in understanding that these threats are out there and how to react to them. It's kind of like the same thing with phishing emails, right? We're trying to train our users not to click on these freaking links. It's really, it's really hard. And I probably would fall for some of them as well, right? But we just have to learn how to deal with it because technology is not always going to be our savior. Are there like hobbyist hackers out there that are just trying to like, it's their personal mission just to go after the cybersecurity people, just to be like the people who are who are guarding the gates. It's like, we want to get them specifically. There's got to be, right? <laughs> right? There is a very high profile reporter in our industry, Brian Cripps. He's a, he's a fantastic investigative reporter and he he will go really deep and, and track crime rings and, and he's a fabulous writer. And, and really good researcher. And I know from him that there have been people that specifically attacked him. And he has crazy stories um, of people trying to bring him down, right? And I wouldn't say these are, these are not the hobbyists. These were the people that got impacted mm -hmm. because he helped taking them down, right? So don't mess with the Russians. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess, it, I guess hobbies is the wrong word, but. Definitely. There's a lot of activity out there for sure. Imagine, you guys heard of uh, CTID. It's a Cyber Threat Intelligence League, which is pretty cool. They, you know, I have a colleague that basically works there. I mean, not works there, as a hobbyist on the good side. Their job is to take down bad guys, right? So there's a little bit of uh, boom, 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 offensive engagement on that front. But generally speaking, I will say anyone can be a target, especially if you carry any type of gatekeeping value or anything like that, right? So anyone can be a target. So do you have any predictions of things that we should be looking out for as, as individuals, as, as people in larger companies? Any predictions that we should be aware of over the next year or two? 
outside of the AI front of things? <laughs> Basically, if you look at how we work today, most likely post-pandemic, we're going to get into a hybrid mode. Certain people will be still working from home. Certain people will be getting back to the office for parts of the week. If you look at that, basically the pandemic pushed us into a new way of working. So it's a huge experiment that but we couldn't do anything about. So I think because of that, we have to really get security down to the edge and you know, systems and networks are going to get faster. So you guys already heard about the service edge concept where you know potentially 5G will reach every region eventually or everything will move quicker. So there's not really a good reason to not be remote at times. And especially when you have uh, you know, sort of the continuation of variants and related to the, the virus. So I believe it's going to change how we secure ourselves and obviously provide solutions that secures customers to be more on the device itself, uh, measure the security posture. We might not even use VPNs anymore because VPN opens up entire IPv4 stack, which potentially can allow the bad guys to move much quicker. So we might just have minimal access that's needed for, for the job that needs to be done. And all that has to be done through some type of zero trust kind of access solution. And those solutions are going to be backed by a lot of intelligence based on the data, right? You know, what kind of traffic is actually happening on the edge, what type of Wi-Fi you're connected to. Before the CVEs gets lifted, embargo lifted, the vulnerabilities come out, we need to make sure these devices are patched quickly. So all this is really going to happen. I feel like it's also important to realize how people do security. So we actually see a large growth in our MSP business because people are just going to need help, right? They're going to need MSPs and MSSPs to do their, to provide the security. It's no longer just one company with IT uh, organizations. Also smaller businesses will need help and you're going to see a a rise of security service providers. Yeah. I'm not sure that I have good predictions on what are the bad things that are going to happen this year, right? Like we will see more breaches here and there, new problems across different technologies. Fleming mentioned 5G, right? We we don't know yet what the, the real implications in that are going to be. We can obviously we have our models on things we think are going to happen. Like 5G is going to be quite interesting when it really is pervasively out there where, where you have these very, very powerful way of getting to the internet without having to go through Wi-Fi or it's just it's different infrastructures and suddenly different use cases become possible that you have to secure. But I think in general, it's like security already is something that everybody talks about, right? After we had ransomware uh, showing up, everybody, I guess so many people got impacted by that and it was serious, right? Now you have to pay money to get your data back. And, and a lot of people know someone else where it happened to them. So people are talking about it. I think people will keep talking about it and people... And it's good that we're talking about it, especially also in the context of privacy. I mentioned that a little bit before, and I think it's so important that we have these conversations in the context of not just AI and systems making decisions for us, but also ethically, what is okay to be monitored and collected and so on, right? Because we, on the security side, we're obviously pushing for more and more data to understand how things work and what you're doing. But is that ethically correct? How can you do it in an ethical way? I don't always need to know everything, but I can collect data anonymously and so that I can't 
attribute it back to Ian when he's doing something bad, but I just know user 15, right? And then when we have enough proof, we can go and check, okay, who is this user 15? And then we go and investigate further, right? But there's so many conversations we need to have in the open. Security is not going to go away. Security is going to be part of everything. It has to be built in, especially also, I think what Fleming just said, right? Like we have such a shortage of security people. Like if anyone is listening that's looking for a career somewhere, going to security, we have so many people we need. Like there's so many open jobs and it's not going to change, right? Because technology is going to get more complex, more more problems here and there that we need to solve for security. There's there's not going to be a shortage, right? Um, so it's um, it's going to become more and more of a topic for for everybody. And as I said, the board level really, probably about a year ago, it started that the board really, really, really is starting to pay attention to security as well. Well, awesome. Both, thank you so much for joining. We really appreciate it. And we'll talk to everybody soon. Great. Thank you. Pleasure meeting everyone. Perfect. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. Good talking with all of you. This episode was brought to you by Box. With collaboration so widespread, securing your critical files and managing risk across your people, devices, and apps is now an urgent issue. That's where Box comes in. Box. Simplify how you work. Secure collaboration with anyone, anywhere, on any device. Learn more at box.com slash work unleashed.